Welcome to Black History for White People, a podcast where we educate, resource, and challenge white people about black history. I'm Brad, and on today's show are my co-hosts, Katina and Garen. Today's topic is Black Requiem. Our very own Katina wrote a song called Black Requiem that you can stream or listen to anywhere right now. Katina walks us through how the song came about, some of the meaning behind the lyrics, how it was working with her son, and her hopes for people listening. We hope you enjoy the discussion. So I'm excited to bring something new to our listeners. Our listeners, most of them don't know how talented and incredible of a musician you are, Katina. Mm. Um, So I'm excited for them to just be surprised by your excellence as a musician and for us to get to play some little excerpts of a new song you have to kind of introduce this side project that you've been working on that we want to bring our listeners in on. From the beginning of this podcast, you would tell me about your passion to create something along this these lines of what you've pulled together here. You wanted to create a song or a musical event where black people could be invited into lament and into grieving just the constant barrage of black death that we witness now through the news and through just because of the incidents of everyone having cell phone cameras, all this violence against black people that has been there all along but wasn't recorded and like now it's it's recorded and it's shown and there's just a grieving and a lament that needs to happen. I remember you talking about that for a long time and that that was a passion. But then I just want to hear from you like how did it get from that passion into this project and tell us about this song. So the name of the song is Black Requiem and so it's always it's been my heart for some years now to just want to curate safe spaces for Black people to lament and process grief. And really not just Black people, like women and any marginalized people group, just to to be able to take a pause and really process, not gloss gloss over, not move on, but to weep. Because I'm a Christian woman and I feel like the process of lament and grief, they are a gift from God as odd as it may sound. And there are scriptures that reference lamenting. Like lamentations. Like lamentations. But then there's a scripture that has always just kind of intrigued me and moved me. Jeremiah 9 starts at 17, where it says that the Lord says to consider and call for the mourning women to come. And that's M-O-U-R-N mourning. Send for the skillful women to come. Let them make haste and raise a wailing over us that our eyes may run down with tears and our eyelids flow with water. For a sound of wailing is heard from Zion. And I mean, it's like a direct quote, if you're, you know, a Christian, a direct quote from, from, from God that we would call forth the women who are professional and skilled at weeping 
and crying over people. And to see that as like a gift and see that as a skill that's to be applied, it's just so powerful because in the world that we live in, we will see grief, we will see sadness, but we live in a culture where, and and I would say especially like in Christianity, where there's just so much hype and happiness and happy, happy, joy, joy, and there's so much focus on being, you know, what we say, blessed and highly favored and that everything is all right because we are Christians, that we don't take the pause that's necessary to be sad about, to weep with those who, are, who weep mm-hmm. and to be sad about things that are sad. And it desensitizes us from just the reality of sorrow. And then so people end up doing dumb stuff like somebody loses a loved one and we don't know what to say. When we don't really have to say anything, we can just weep. And there's just an awkwardness when it comes to like death or just sad things. People oftentimes will get isolated or feel alone and and people don't know how to support them. And because specifically of black death and trauma and the distrust of like black people with medical community, mental health, I just feel that it's important to create, it's just, a, I feel called to create those spaces where we can acknowledge the tragedy and trauma of whatever is happening in the moment or what has happened, and just sit in that sadness so that people can actually heal, that it can start, you know, the process of healing. Mm -hmm. And just acknowledging, like, acknowledging that this is horrible Mm -hmm. so that we don't become desensitized. So from there, I joined a group of women, a very diverse group of women in Dallas, and we started putting these events on called She Laments. And it was basically in response to, to sexual abuse. I'm a sexual abuse survivor. It was and and just some of the things that was playing that that were playing out on the national news. And the events would be so powerful. Again, a very diverse group of women, pastors, teachers, writers, creatives. I would lead worship, and we would just get together, be very intentional about the marketing and you know just promoting of the event. Completely free event but just curating that safe space, doing things like putting out butcher paper and crayons, dissolving paper where people could write their thoughts and put it in the water that and, and dissolve it, like setting out pillows and blankets and telling people that I'm going to sing over you, but you don't have to sit here and listen to me sing. You can move around the room. You can eat snacks. You can do whatever you feel free to want to do in this space. Like you're not tied to whoever's on the mic. And it was just powerful because as these things were coming up on the national landscape about, you know, sexual abuse and trauma, a lot of women were triggered. And creating this safe space gave them a way to express their grief and gave them an outlet. And because of the diversity of the group of women I was with, it there was a diversity of the audience. And it was just really a powerful time. So from there, I really started digging deep into just the process of lament. I have been through very traumatic events in my life that have impacted me greatly and still impact me greatly. That's what I'm driven by is saying, okay, I want to see healing and I want to see just an open, honest expression or just an open, honest dialogue in a space, create a safe space for people to grieve. And let me just go back a little bit. 
as we're seeing the, the videos of black death and trauma and injustice, because of social me- media and technology, black people are just being traumatized with every incident. And then a person becomes a hashtag. And then before we can properly grieve what's happened, what we've just seen, some think something else is on the heels, stuff has happened simultaneously. But it, it, for me, it really started kicking in when, like when Botham Jean died, like all of these deaths, Philando Castile was just disturbing to me on so many levels because there was a baby in the car and the police officer just riddled him and he was so compliant. Like that, Im- that image was just, it just, I don't, it, it, it broke something in me. And just Trayvon Martin and all of the, I mean, there's so many, but Botham Jean was right here in Dallas and he was at home and he was eating a bowl of ice cream. And Amber Geiger walked into his home and killed him. That was in Dallas, in an area where some of my friends live. Some of my friends know him, knew him, interacted with him, lived in the same building as him. It was just disturbing on so many levels and how people immediately went to the fact that, well, went to, you know, they may have found marijuana. Like, I don't care. Dug through his trash. Yeah, they dug, like my song says, digging through their trash. And then, that was in September 2018, then Lamont Stowers Jones in Denton, right here in Denton, who was pushed off of a bridge that has a racialized, a history of racialized violence and a whole like urban legend around a black man being killed. But he was pushed off a bridge. Which for new he, listeners, we, we have a whole episode on that, uh, the second part of our lynching episode. Absolutely. Story. And Lamont was, he went to school with my oldest son. Like they didn't know each other, but he was in the ninth grade when my son was a senior. They went to the same high school. My children go to school with his siblings and went to school with his siblings. So that was right here in Denton, and it was just disturbing on so many levels. I'd seen this young man in the community because I'm a part of the black community here, and he was a musician. His family played and attended a church that I've sung at. And so I didn't see a public outcry, and his story didn't, because I guess because there was no video, it did not hit the national news, and and many people just kind of went on about, there was no public outcry. And then... That was in November 2018. Elijah McClain, he was killed for just walking home with a mask on because he had the mask, because he obviously had sensory issues associated with, I'm not sure what his issue was, maybe anxiety, I'm not sure. But they basically like beat him down, like choked him out. And he was doing nothing. Tatiana Jefferson, right here in Fort Worth, she was in her house with her nephew playing videos. She was like this amazing, like, I think she was math and science, STEM. You know, she was a teacher, I think. I'm not sure. But her black neighbor asked the police to do a well check because her door was left open. And the officer went and on her property saw her shadow. She gets up she's because she's up with her gun in her house because she hears something on her property. She's protecting her nephew. He shot her through her window. And then her, some of her relatives have died. Parents, you know, 
One of her parents died, like, since then, but just the heartbreak. And that was right here in Dallas-Fort Worth. And then the Amber Geiger trial in October 2019, just the spectacle and just the desire to want to see her as something other than who she was. It just, and, and there was a lyric in the song that came to me, you know, Mary weep, Martha moan when our babies aren't coming home and they're killed in their own home. It just, that's where the song, the song started for me with just those lyrics. Because when we sing, black people, we have a spiritual, an old hymn that says, Mary, don't you weep, Martha, don't you moan. And it, ta- it basically comes from the story of Lazarus when his sisters were calling on Jesus to come because he was dying. And then he died before Jesus got there. And they were, you know, just broken. And when Jesus showed up, they were like, if you would have come, he would have lived. And then God, res- Jesus re- resurrected him. And so there's a song that comes from that, that because, of course, black people identify so strongly with many of the Bible stories. But Mary don't weep, Martha don't moan. But then they go back to the Egyptian, the Exodus story where e- e- the, the Egyptians enslaved the Hebrew children And it says Pharaoh's army is drowned in the Red Sea, which that kind of parallels with the the devil himself. So they take these two stories and they put them together. Mary, don't you weep. Martha, don't you moan. Mary, don't you weep. Martha, don't you moan. Pharaoh's army is drowned in the sea. And we're singing, Mary, don't you weep. Then it goes to, if I could, I surely would stand on the rock where Moses stood. And so it weaves these stories together in a song of hope and expectancy that God would see us through the persecution and the oppression that we experience. And it's a powerful song that's been done and redone and you hear it in black churches. But I was like, no, I want to weep. I want to moan. I want to be upset. I want to be angry. And so I took that song and I, I mean, I took those words and I was like, trying to find words and how I felt. And I was like, Mary actually do weep. Mm-hmm. Martha do moan because our babies ain't coming home and they killed in their own home. So those were the first lyrics of the song. And I didn't necessarily set out to write a song about justice. It just, as these stories, you know, kept playing out. And then again, like I said, the Amber Geiger trial in October 2019, then Darius Tarver, who was a UNT student who was having a mental distress. Again, a well, you know, his roommates called for the police to check on him and they end up murdering him. And his father is a police chaplain. We interviewed him. We interviewed Pastor Kevin Tarver. He's a police chaplain for McKinney and his son is in school and studying law enforcement and his son is murdered. So that happened right here in Denton in January 2020, then Ahmaud Arbery jogging. And the last words that he hears before he is killed is, is, you fucking nigger, is what they said to him. Those are the last words he heard before he left this earth. And then Breonna Taylor in March 2020. And then George Floyd in May 2020. So from there, you know, all across the country, these protests just erupted in Dallas as well, and then in Denton. And I was a part of the protest in Denton, and there were thousands 
of people. And we mobilized. I mean, there were medics. Like, it was a very organized effort to ensure the safety of the protesters. My children were out there. My husband was out there. Many in our community, we were out there. And it stirred this song up in me. Because I started writing a song like a like what, 2018, 2019, those lyrics, I kept singing them every day. And that's all I had. And then it went from there, I started adding lyrics because I was protesting and I was, you know, a protest organizer and I was up speaking and, you know, and there were many people just coming together in, in our community in a way that I had not seen that and, and, and I started speaking, the, the, like many in the city didn't even know the story of Lamont because the, the local newspapers put a spin on it mm-hmm. and no one really knew his story. And so we got to speak Lamont Stowers Jones' name and the song just grew from there because I was angry. I was full of rage. I was broken because, again, Lamont was my children's, close to my children's age. Darius was close to my oldest son's age, and he went to my alma mater. From there, the song I I got with my oldest son, who is an artist, and his name is uh, Jamie, but his artist name is Mystic, M-I-Z-T-I-C-K. And I was like, son, I need, we need to write a song to really give voice to what we're feeling right now. I mean, seeing George, George Floyd, this officer's knee on his neck with no remorse, how we saw just this ongoing slaughter and lynching of black bodies and how black people had to pursue their own justice and we had to be our own news outlets. Mm. And black people were literally, in California, multiple incidences of black people literally being lynched on trees. Yeah, lynchings were, like, it was as we were resisting, there was a resistance to us Mm -hmm. that was happening. And then there was rhetoric from even the White House on down. Mm-hmm. And so from there, Black Requiem was born. And I, you know, have a background. I'm a classically trained singer and songwriter. I studied music in college. I'm originally from Memphis. I was in opera theater, powdered wigs, singing full Italian, German, French, all the things. Transferred to UNT. To the, it was accepted to the School of Music here. And it's one of the most prestigious schools of music in the country. And I've been performing locally. I travel and perform, you know, for many years. My dad was a musician, so music is just a part of my life. I'm a music creative, and I I use my music in a way that ministers and fosters healing. And so I sing a lot of justice music. There's so much justice music. There's Marvin Gaye, there's Nina Simone, there's Curtis Mayfield, Aretha Franklin, Dunny Hathaway, Sam Cooke, the writers of the Negro Spirituals, the chain, the work songs, the chain gang songs, the blues, gospel music, rock and roll, country music. Like there's so there's so many songs about justice. Bob Marley. I mean, just so many. And so I wanted to add to the collection and speak for it this time. And so it's important that I get my son in on it because he's amazingly gifted. He's played with my band through the years from middle school, and that's where he kind of honed his craft as a musician, played guitar, sings, and he does spoken word and rap, and he already has music out. And he's like, Mom, I need, you to, I need you to do something. I need you to get some music out. So we started working with another young UNT alum who was a dear friend of mine, Terrence Brown. He helped with the arrangement. I knew what I wanted. We just 
just went and sat and I played around with lyrics and played around with format. And so what eventually, you know, was birthed was this 11-minute, 50-second song. Because unfortunately, it couldn't fit in a three minutes and 33 seconds. And what a requiem is, is a mass. And I'm not Catholic, but it's a mass. I grew, you know, being in school, studying music, I've sang a lot of requiems. And John Rutter is one of my favorite composers. And he's, I think he's still living. And he wrote a requiem that I learned in high school at my performing arts high school. And it's one of my favorite. There are many requiems by many composers over the centuries. But Rudder's is a contemporary requiem. And it basically is a, it's just a, a mass for the dead. It's a part of Catholic service. It's sang in Latin. There's several different songs. It normally starts with like a requiem, a ternum, like grant them eternal rest, pia Jesu, kyrie eleison. These are words that you hear a lot in requiems. And they have a standard format, but I wanted to make mine blackity black. So mine is a little bit different, a lot different in structure but it is it has that same format of wanting to honor the dead but also to plead their case mm. to plead their case why is this happening what is going on but then to also lament and to retell their and to tell their stories to tell these these stories but also to give voice to this current generation of protesters because each wave of resistance is stirred up by what whoever the young people are at the time. So the civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s, that, that was the young folks. Th- those were the high schoolers and college students and, you know, the Black Panther Party. Like, they were college students and young people, middle school students, high school students. And we talked about that throughout the podcast episodes. And so this generation, they took to the streets in their way with Black Lives Matter protest and expressing their anger and their rage in the way that their generation speaks it. They took it to their music. They took it to their art, their creative justice. And so it was important to me to have my son say his piece in the way that he does. And he's a he's a trap metal artist. It's so funny because his mom, you know, I come from Memphis with this. My, my dad was a quartet musician, like a gospel blues type singer, but he also was classically trained and was in glee club and all these things, played all these instruments. Then his mom is this opera singer, but also grew up blues, gospel, you know, all of that. Just we're not limited by genres in our family. Then my son, who has always been emo, goth, screamo, since he was like really, really little, Danny Phantom, all the things. And then he's now this, you know, trap metal artist. And he brought this screamo onto the piece that was just, amazing smack dab in the middle of the song. And I, I'm very proud of this work because I, I really feel like it gives voice, but it also unites the generations of voices because you get a little bit of jazz, you get a little bit of soul, you get, you know, the trap metal, you get rap, you get R&B, and you even get like a classical feel. It's amazing. One of the lyrics that you mention in the song that you haven't talked about so far that um, a lot of our audience I don't think have heard this story yet but you reference that your mom-in-law uh, was falsely accused and you say she died behind the prison walls could you tell that story so that when 
we're going to send the, the listeners in the show notes to, to listen to this song in full. But I want them to know as they're listening, like what is embedded in those words. She's, I talk about my mother-in-law in the lament section, Mary Wheat Martha Moan. They framed my mom-in-law for murder, y'all, and she died behind the prison walls. Life imprisonment with no parole. Prison work camp gave her cancer, though. Mama Ben ain't never coming home. Mary weep and Martha moan when our people ain't coming home, when our people ain't coming home. So I've been married for 23 years now. My husband actually is a retired police officer. He's actually a licensed police officer, studied criminology in college. I met, he was attending a school, college in Arkansas, Arkansas Arkansas State in Jonesboro when I was in at the University of Memphis. And we met before I moved to Texas and we continued our relationship and he moved here a year after I moved here for school and then a year after that we got married. Well, in the transition of me coming to Texas, he lo- he's in his dorm room and he looks up on television because some of my fraternity brothers, they were very close with my husband. He had a lot of good friends at, at college. So some of the brothers, they came in and they were like, Jay, you know, they call him Jay. His name's Jamel, but they were like, dude, you know, have you seen TV? So they turned the TV on and he, see his mom, he sees his mom getting arrested. Like he sees this place like on TV. And this is where he finds out that his mother, Benfordine Smith, and he was my boyfriend at the time, but his mother, Benfordine Smith, was being arrested for the murder of her landlord. And so that was in 95, 96. And uh, we went to see her in the jail. And she was like, I absolutely, you know, I didn't do this. And we know and he comes from a small town in Arkansas, Stuttgart, Arkansas. That's where he grew up. That's where she grew up. And basically what happened was that one of her friends framed her for the murder. She was... Her one, two of her two people that she knew actually murdered this man, and the way the man was murdered, it was so brutal. And she's not like this big woman. Like the way this person was murdered, there was no way that one person could have done it. And there was so much blood and so much gore, and her DNA was not found anywhere at the scene of the crime anywhere. But they framed her, and there was a corrupt district district attorney who one of the people was an informant and they basically colluded to frame her and imprison her. And they even wrote letters just saying that she did not commit the crime. And, you know, we appealed, we appealed, we appealed. And we, the Innocence Project, Arkansas, they took on her case. And what people don't realize about the Innocence Project is that a lot of times it's law students that are part of the Innocence Project. So they're in law school three, four years, and they move on. And so a lot of cases, the Innocence Project, they're, they're doing tremendous work all over the country. But, you know, there's just this revolving pool, pool of law students and law, lawyers that take on cases, and the process could take decades. And for as many people that you see in the news that get out of prison after 20 years, 30 years, you know, the Exonerated Five, I sing about them, after 20 years... There's so many more that do not see that justice. And so when we got married, she was in prison. Before we got married, we went to her trial 
And it was in the small town. And I think it was, yeah, it was an all-white jury. One of the jurors was, I think, a former teacher of hers. It was like, for me, it was so crazy because it was like watching a movie. We went and my husband got on the witness stand and he had to, when they sentenced her just like that. Like the trial and the sentencing happened all on the same day. And they, they found her guilty and then... My husband had to get on the stand and beg for them not to give her the death penalty. And the DA, he knew all about my, he'd start talking about my husband. He knew all about my husband. He knew about me. He knew that we lived in Texas. Like, it was crazy how much research that they had done on us, not even knowing if we were going to, like, you know, not, it was weird. It was just a weird, because he was advocating, that DA, he was advocating for the death penalty. And he was like, please don't kill my mom. You know, this is, she's all I have. He was like, oh, that, she's not all you have. You got a girlfriend. Y'all live in Texas and da-da-da-da-da-da-da. The police came looking for us and tried to, and we got a tip that we needed to get out of town as soon as possible because they were coming to try to accuse my husband of intimidating a juror. And I was at, well, my boyfriend at the time, I was with him the entire time and he went to school for law enforcement. There, he, and he is a gentle giant. There was nothing that, he did nothing. But the police came to the hotel looking for him. And so there was so much intimidation and craziness that was going on. And just like that, her life was taken from her. And my husband's sister was 11 years old. And she sat in the court beside me and we watched her lose her mother for a crime that she didn't commit. And then immediately we're trying to go into appeals and we're doing all this stuff. I remember writing the Innocence Project just to say, hey, you know, just checking on the status. And we would go visit her in the prison. And I remember when my oldest son, she saw, you know, she met him for the first time. And because we were out of state, because there's all kinds of rules about visitation and your name having it like the process of visitation, which is understandable. But um, when we would go, there'd be a lot of like hostility towards us. We were out of state, so we were allowed to visit her with a shorter notice than people in state because we were outside a certain mileage. You know, we were so far away. So we we would be able to call and kind of coordinate a little bit sooner, like within 24 hours or 48 hours or whatever. And we took our son and, you know, we go through all the, the process, getting scanned and being checked and all that. And I remember my son, just over the years, like even, we would go visit and it would be a four-hour visit and he would be like throwing, he fell in love with her the first day he met her, like, and he would be pulling for her. And and I remember one time he was like three, he was like, Grandma, get up, come on, let's go, let's leave, come on. And she was like, baby, Grandma can't leave. Why can't you leave this place? He's like, why are we here? Like he, he had a meltdown. Why are we here? Why are these people treating us like that? He was, I remember at one point we were walking through the door and he grabbed the door, like just pulling and screaming. Just didn't understand why his grandmother was in that place and just what it did to him. And um, she was an amazing grandmother. She sent gifts from prison. <laughs> she remembered every birthday, every, every celebration, she remembered, and she somehow would have gifts sent to her grandkids. 
she remembered everything, every single thing that they, every, she celebrated every achievement. She wrote letters. And just visiting her through the years is just hard. It's just horrible. And just every visit, hoping that, you know, yeah, we're working on the appeal, the Innocence Project called, da 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 They recanted. They wrote letters to the governor. The DA was found out to be corrupt, which the whole city, this is a small, 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 small town. So they knew. Like, he had cases that he had tried that, that you know, come to find out that he colluded and was corrupt. They didn't reopen her case. It was just agonizing. And so, you know, to pass the time, she, she joined a work release program. And I remember just, you know, she'd make a little money for her commissary. She would call us and she'd be in a building that was full of asbestos and dangerous, basically. Very shortly after, we were actually in California, she called and said that the doctor said that she had cancer and that she had three months to live, but they told her that a few months prior and she didn't tell us. And the day after my oldest son graduated from high school, the day after is when she died. And that was in May, June You know, we were hoping that she would pull through, but she was dying, and I would tell my husband, because of how visitation works, can you imagine visiting your mother-in-law in in prison? I mean, your grandmother, your mother in prison, and he would be like, I I was like, you need to drive up and down this highway every time, every chance you get. You need to go and stay in Arkansas for like a week or two and just visit her every day and... I'm like, because when this time passes, you will, you need to be at peace with knowing that you, you did everything that you could. So there was a period where he was driving back and forth because she was in this prison that was not really near an airport. Like he drove to Arkansas every day or, or, you know, like for a week at a days at a time, back and forth, back and forth. Then she passed away. And I wrote a song, actually, now that I think about it, I wrote a song with my son that we just kind of sang amongst ourselves, just celebrating her. And at her funeral, we went, and there were officers there, you know, from the prison that came, and all the grandbabies. She has my three, our three boys, but then she had, my sister-in-law has a son and a daughter. It was just, it's just, just horrible. It took me a few, like a few years to kind of even process that grief and just hard. Yeah. I mean, I think even for our listeners, I just hope that a story like that just brings it close to home for you and for your heart. That these things that we talk about on this podcast are not like statistics or abstractions. That I think of all the stories that you have brought us in this podcast, all the people that you don't just know of, but know who have experienced these aspects of racial injustice in in your own life, the things you've experienced, and then this story of your mother-in-law, and just want our listeners to feel that weight of just how constant this reality is in the black community and that this is not just some little thing that's being blown out of proportion, that this is the shape of life for many black and brown people in our country. And then just the response to that then just to grieve. And that's exactly what your song invites us into Yeah, is to grieve that. And she, you know, because if you're going, going to look up the story, she has a past, which 
that makes it so easy for people to discard black folks. And I talk about that in the song about the stories be the same, skin tones, but their names change. Shifting all the blame like the victims did it to themselves, going through their trash, digging up their past, make their lives a crime, lying to deny, making up excuses for the why they had to die, putting them on trial, blame the victims why. If they would have, should have done what could have kept them from demise, but the truth be told, they were being black while fill in the blank. Like, we live that. Mm-hmm. And she has a past. She has a, she, she had drug use. Which for some, you know, for the white community is a mental illness, but for the black community, it's a crime. And she had been in jail before. And, you know, when my husband was young and she went through abuse and she went through trauma, she had things that happened in her life. But instead of seeing her as someone that should be protected, defended, uplifted, healed, it was see her as a criminal. And she was also a lesbian, which in the state of Arkansas, that's, you know, It's easy to discard someone as other, a black female lesbian, you know, who was a drug user. And and so I don't want to shy away from that because if if you're going to go look her up and you see that she has a past, so the hell what? She still did not deserve to rot in prison for a crime that she did not commit, period. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So let's just get that out the way. And the DA used her past against her. And I'll never forget during the trial, the one, there was a woman who was a teacher, who was one of her teachers when she was in high school. She walked by her because the jury was filing out and she was an old white woman and she said, Ben for Dean and 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 my mom-in-law was yes, like, yes, miss, whatever her name was, yes, Miss Smith or whatever her name was. She was like, I just want to know, why did you, she asked her something and she was holding her hand. And my mother-in-law was like, Miss Smith, you know, she said, I didn't do, I didn't do that. I didn't do that. You know, she, and the woman, she just kind of patted her hand and they filed on out. And then after the trial, over a period of a few years, weird stuff was happening. Like people, I think there were people on that jury that were so riddled with guilt. One woman who died on her deathbed was like, I know that she didn't, it was like this deathbed juror confession. Like, yeah, yeah, I know that she didn't do it. And there were like weird things that happened like that because they know why they indicted her. They know, I mean, they know why they found her guilty. And it wasn't because she committed the crime, because even though her attorney was just probably some public defender dude, he laid it out and he said, there was no DNA. There was no DNA. And the way this man was slaughtered, it took multiple people to do it. And her DNA was nowhere to be found. Case closed. That's it. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, she has a past, but she did not deserve to rot. She deserved the opportunity for her life to be changed Mm -hmm. with time. She deserved the opportunity to be redeemed, like all of us get to be redeemed from youthful indiscretion or whatever we've done in the past. She deserved not to have her life endangered for pennies going. And I mean, the way that prisoners are used to fight fires or abate asbestos or just like put 
in all this danger with basically the threat of like you just stay trapped indoors in a cell or you want to get out to where you can actually experience any kind of living. You have to like put your body in all this danger. I mean, that's a common thing that still happens today. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. But, you know, my oldest son's graduation will be forever marked by the fact that the day after he graduated in 2016 that his grandmother, who was in prison serving a life sentence for a crime that she didn't commit, died a horrible death of cancer from, we believe, a prison work camp Mm -hmm. that had dangerous conditions. So this song, you you said you did it with your son, Jamie, mm-hmm. and he's got he's in a different generation, got a whole different musical style. Could you talk about what it was like both the relationally and just musically blending the, the, that collaboration and, and what came from that? Yes, you know, there was a fusion of genres, which he's used to because I've always kind of dibbled and dabbled and, you know, I just believe good music is good music and what feels good and sounds good, you just do it. And so he has a very diverse palette and it was just amazing doing this with him and seeing, because he, he's on, he's grown and on his own now. And so it was just amazing, like seeing the process and him teaching me, like this is a new generation of streaming services and how music is produced. And it was just really a, just an interesting process. And I learned a lot from him. Our family is very close, but this song brought my son and I together even more in such a sweet way. And just the creative process and him knowing that his voice was just as important as mine. And his, his section in the song is probably like my favorite. Every time I listen to it, it's so powerful. It's kind of like every time I hear his part, it's like what would the Martin Luther King I Have a Dream speech be for this generation? Because he says in the song, I dream of a day when we're in liberated peace. I dream of a day when we're not running from police. I dream of a day when we're, when we don't have to take a knee. I dream of a day when we're not murdered in our sheets. And that's a reference for Breonna Taylor, but also for Fred Hampton. And just very powerful. That's how he ends his part. And he speaks specifically to white apathy and white wokeness because he starts off with a lyric from this hip-hop group called The Far Side from back in the 80s, 90s. They had this song called She Keeps On Passing Me By. And so it's like, my dear, my dear, my dear, you do not know me, but I know you very well. That's like a that's like an old like hip-hop reference to the word, like shout-out to, to The Far Side because that's a real popular hip-hop song. But he takes that, and in, in that song, they're singing like to a girl, but he's singing to white people. And so he goes into this, my dear, my dear, my dear, you do not know me, but I know you very well. Just the fact that we have to be constantly aware of whiteness in a way that whiteness does not have to consider us. He says, silent in the battle, but you're quick to pull a card for show and tell. He says, don't tell me that you'll stand when you don't have a will to walk. Don't tell me that you'll walk if you don't have a will to talk. And then he goes into the screamo. Don't tell me that you're woke. Please don't play games about who you are. Don't tell me that you're broken when you ain't been hit at all. And then he says, all me and my brothers want is peace amongst us all. Why is this a message you're attacking with your dogs? Why is this a message you're attacking with your wall? Why is this a message that's an outrage to the world? So he, when he says, all me and my brothers want, it's like this BIPOC collective because he talks about the wall, mm-hmm. you know, 
and he talks about, and, and when, when he says me and my brothers, I think about his actual brothers, like mm-hmm. all my boys. But then I think about the collective of brothers. Mm-hmm. And then he screams. he my, talks about them crying out inside their cells. So like yes. this bigger collection of brotherhood. He yeah. says again, my dear, my dear, my dear, you do not know me. He's screaming. You do not know me, but I know you very well, so well. Listen to my brothers crying out from in the streets and in their cells, such hell. And that's when he goes into the I dream. Like his part, like it gives me chills. Mm -hmm. There's something. And it's like, I talked to my son before. I was like, because we did a little video one time, like a live, because he had put out an album where he was doing his screamo stuff. And I was like, you know, so what's, and I wanted to kind of get ahead of the narrative because, you know, I'm a Christian woman. My son is out here doing his own thing and expressing in his own way. He's made, he's a grown man making grown man decisions. And so I wanted to support his album and challenge him on some of the things that I didn't agree with. And we just had an open conversation because what I'm not going to do is not support my son. Because people want black people to disassociate themselves and kick our kids out in the street for youthful indiscretion or for being, like, not being in the Christian bubble. And he's gotten some of that. Like, how are you Katina's son? Like this, he's my son like this. I gave birth to him. But white kids, they can be however they want. They have the freedom to be as raggedy. They, they can, and my son, yeah, my son has never, like, he is, he's never been in jail. Like, he has, he's been pulled over by cops just for skateboarding, just for being black. But he is a law-abiding citizen, upstanding, well-behaved, well-mannered. Everybody loves him, but that shouldn't, it, it shouldn't matter. But, you know, people look at him with his tattoos, his gauges in his ears, his dreadlocks, and they make assumptions. And he is an amazing, and I hate to use this word articulate because it, it's like it's weaponized against us. But he is articulate. He's a critical thinker. He is a woman's advocate. Like the way he stands for women's rights is so powerful. I just watch him and I'm in awe of like how bold he is and how powerful. Like he'll post something on his social media and it's like, dead on and he does not miss words and he's quiet he's a pretty quiet soul like his dad but when any of my sons say something it's just like dang and so he sings this screamo and so we're we're doing this interview I'm doing this interview and I'm like Jamie like let's talk about the screamo like why you gotta be screaming he was like mom screaming has always been a form of expression He said, they're screaming. And I was like, dang, this is facts. I remember a few classical pieces. There's a a piece called the Carmina Burana, and they play it a lot in movies. You know, that da, 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 da. You hear that song? Mm -hmm. But it's from a work called the Carmina Burana. And there is a song where a man, and this is a very old, very, very old classical piece, where a man is singing and screaming in this classical work because, not to be graphic, but because his testicles are burning. Like, and this is a classical piece that is sang in colleges everywhere, that is sang, you know, with orchestras and choirs everywhere. It's a celebrated piece of music, and they're screaming. Gospel music. We be screaming. You know, rock and roll. We be screaming. You know? I mean, there's a lot of hollering (laughs) in a lot of music. And it's like, so why is Screamo, why does Screamo have to be different? Because they're screaming in a different way. 
So when he said that, he said, screaming has been the expression, has been a powerful, preach, black preachers preach, they be screaming. Well, I think that powerful. the function of screaming, when my kids scream, it's because they've already been trying to say something and they've not been heard. Right. And I think that his part, the style of music lends itself so well to what he's saying. Yes. Both that like, you do not hear me, so I have to like scream, but also that kind of an appropriate expression of anger that's kind of embedded in the screaming towards injustice. Yeah. I think it so perfectly fits. Yeah. The the music to the part of and, what he's saying. And I love that working with him again is the generations and genres. Cause sometimes there's there's always a disconnect with each like so when during the civil rights movement of the fifties and sixties, the young people that were protesting got a lot of resistance from the older black people because they were trying to keep their jobs and keep their heads down. And they, you know, some of them had survived slavery or their parents had been enslaved. So they were like, okay, let's not, you know ripple the waters here because, you know, back then they were still getting lynched and stuff. So a lot of black people, they, it was self-preservation. But the younger folks were like in the streets marching. They were doing their thing. And that's the same thing today. You will find there are black people that disagree with the Black Lives Matter movement, organization, marches, the sentiment. There are black people that disagree with that. There are black people that disagree with, you know, what they would call rioting. I don't necessarily agree with rioting, but there's been rioting on our uh, a rioting assault on our bodies, black bodies for centuries. And so, being able to sing with my son and put this song together with my son, compose this piece of work is so powerful because it's a gap bridging work of generations. You know, cuz every generation is like, why are you listening to that music? Back in when I was your age, we we our music was real music, but then when you go back to when you was the, your age, your parents didn't like your music and their parents didn't like their music and so on and so forth. Like music, you know, it progresses just like resistance and the fight against oppression. Like it's advanced and the prior generation typically doesn't like it. And then at some point it becomes the mainstream and then the next generation does something different and that, that the prior generation doesn't like it. And so I think it was very powerful to put multiple generations, because I carried my dad and my mom, my gospel music roots, quartet singing. The song is very BGB heavy, background vocal. I love, like I grew up where in church is a lot of talk back. Mm-hmm. You know, you talking back to the preacher. Yes. Amen. Say that. You know, you clap, you talk, because the preacher's like, I wish somebody would talk back to me. I wish I, I can't hear y'all. And so there's a lot of call and response. And Aretha Franklin is one of my favorite artists of all time. Like, she is like my auntie in my head. I love her and still grieve her death. And she set the precedent for background vocalists. I mean, Mick Jagger, like all, the Rolling Stones, all of these folk, you know, Queen, they looked to Aretha Franklin. They went to her concerts and she set the foundation for what a real background vocalist should do. So my background vocalists, they're amazing and they're all like, they look, they can sing better than me. They have their own thing. And they're all, they all three of them have gospel roots, they're worship leaders, but the way they talk back to me, like there's a call and response that mm-hmm. happens. It's so creative. That's my parents. That's my grandparents. And so I bring, you know, three or four generations with me to this song. And then my son brings him his whole self. And 
it's just so powerful to have a like a unity with the generations in this time when even black people are divided over how we should approach this. But we're not a monolith and there's no one way to lament. There is no one way to protest. There is no one way to advocate. There is no one way to resist. Yeah, I'm really proud of that. And then just to kind of my, my, the band, very diverse, just organically diverse, drummer, drummer, Asian Pacific Islander, keyboard player and producer, in, the engineer, white young man, Jordan Gein, and then the bass player is white, cello player, young black man, Terrence Brown, who helped me, helped us with the arrangement, BGV's black. It's just really powerful. Film, the filmmaker, the, there was a documentary, student documentary done on the piece Black Requiem by a young man who is Mexican and black. And so there's just this powerful unity, collective participation. Rubber Gloves, a rehearsal studios owned by an older white gentleman and the manager, Chad, he always gave us rehearsal space and just supported us. When we had the event the other night at the uh, release, on the, the release is on the 18th, but we had the pre-launch on the 17th. We were at Rubber Gloves because they support, my stage name is KB Uncomplicated. They've always supported everything that I've done and it's owned by white men in Denton. And as you saw at the pre-launch event, it was very diverse. People were coming in off the street. <laughs> it was very, you know, engaging, interactive. You know, I asked for the audience to talk back to me after they heard the song for the first time. I, we got, you know, we had dialogue mm -hmm. and discussion, so. Well, let me send our audience to the song by giving some of my own kind of impressions of it from that okay. night. We're going to have a link to the song. You can get it on any streaming service, but we'll have a link to it in the show notes. So I just want to encourage the listeners to go and, and listen to the song. Probably find, it is a, a heavy song. It's a lamenting song. So find a space where you can just slow down a minute and, and listen. And then for my own experience of the song, there's, there's two things I want to just highlight and encourage the listeners, the white listeners to take from it. And the first is just, Going all the way back to the very first episode we did of this podcast, one of the things that we talked about was the need to just hear Black Lives Matter as affirmation rather than an accusation and the need to enter into and hear the Black grief and to to not become defensive, but in, in the face of that grief to just love and empathize. And for me, the song was just such a powerful invitation to empathize and to love and to, to enter into that grief. And I mean, I got goosebumps listening to it and just it got to experience that, that grief that I mean, I also just like as a white person, I also hear all these news stories and I hear them through kind of like this separate lens that can make it easier for me to just to cope with the sadness. For white people, there's an easier out in, from feeling that pain. It's easier to turn off, and we need to not turn it off. We white people need to love demands that we don't just dissociate from that pain because we are one people and a denial of that is a form of, of white supremacy. A denial, like to say that this is not also our pain is a form of white privilege and white supremacy of saying like these black lives don't matter as much or they're separate or other. We need to feel that pain and to know that this is also us. Yeah. We are also 
dying because we are one people. Like God did not make distinct races. He made us one people and we have subdivided and drawn lines to advantage ourselves. And for generations, this was done to pass wealth within, you know, white lineage and to pass advantage down to protect it. But it's not real. In God's eyes, it's not real. The the lines, the color lines as we've drawn them are, to quote propaganda, we interviewed on this show, like those things are made up. People made up and kind of arbitrarily decided how race would be inherited. And so we had race inherited different ways at different times in history where sometimes it's like, okay, if you're three quarters white, then that's when you start counting as white or one drop rule or like paper bag rules where they would use brown paper bags and lighter than this is white and darker than this is black and different subcultures at different times. Like Italians weren't always considered white and then they got to be considered white because white people needed them to, wanted to recruit them to be police of black people. And so they said, basically, you can count as white now. So there's these arbitrary rules that we've drawn. When when all that's just made up, the reality is that in in God's eyes and the actual reality, whatever God has in his eyes, that's what's actually real. (laughs) Like we are one people and we are also dying. And so I just want to invite white listeners to not otherize black pain, to enter into it, to empathize with it, and to grieve with it, and take that invitation and just feel the pain and identify with it and support it. And then also, there's more, I think, in the song that pain is a bigger emphasis or grief is a bigger emphasis than anger. But I think there's also, especially in Jamie's part, just this this anger that's kind of like a holy, righteous anger indignation yeah, absolutely. with this injustice. And to also just encourage the listeners to, to feel that and to know that that's like a holy feeling. The Bible paints God as having a holy, angry indignation towards injustice and sin. Not just in like a couple Bible verses. I mean, this is a theme all throughout scripture that anger is an inherent part of love. If I love my children, I'm going to inherently be angry when they are threatened or harmed. And the degree to which I love something is the is going to show how angry I'm going to be when it's harmed. Like I'm going to be really angry if my nephews and nieces are threatened and harmed and even more angry if my kids are threatened or harmed because the anger is the natural response to the love. The scale of the love and the scale of the threat to that love are going to produce naturally that anger. And we've talked about this before that a lot of times we have unholy anger because a lot of times we're angry because our own pride is threatened or because we love ourselves or love the wrong things. I'm, I'm angry because I got cut off on the road and it's completely just self-focused. But holy anger is that anger that's appropriately scaled to a, a holy love yeah. that is being threatened. And it's right to feel that. And so just want to invite white listeners to listen to the song, feel the grief, feel the anger. And in that, I think there's a kind of healing that can start to happen where our grief actually is so healthy for the human brain because it takes pain that we otherwise are just still affected and crippled by. And it kind of, it, after grieving, we still feel the pain but it's actually processed in a different part of the brain mm-hmm. where we can actually feel it in a way that can actually be empowering for ongoing work rather mm-hmm. than crippling or rather mm-hmm. than unprocessed pain we hide from or cope with. And a lot of that coping isn't healthy. Yeah. But processed pain can actually direct us towards work 
to to make a difference and to fix that pain. So for white and and for black listeners, we have a lot of black listeners too. And I think that so I'm speaking to everyone that work of processing both the anger and the pain is so important. So listen to it and let it usher you into the work ahead to begin to make a different world. Yeah. Thank you. That was great, Garen. So just to kind of tell people how they can support as we wrap it up, Black Requiem, it's a lament for our lives. It's a demand for our dignity. The song ends in hope because you can't, you know, I personally feel like you can't grieve and have lament without hope. And that's the, that's the dichotomy of being Black in America. It's like we exist, we deal with the atrocities, but we create the culture, we contribute, we do so many amazing things. And so it ends with hope. You can stream it and share it. And just to let you know, like, I am very convicted that this song specifically, especially, supports those who are fighting injustice. So I, there's a, a portion of the proceeds are going to go to specifically Dallas-Fort Worth initiatives and to families and foundations that have been impacted by injustice. Darius Tarver, his father has a foundation. Lamont Stowers-Jones. I definitely want to support them. Botham Jean's family has a foundation. I'm looking into a Tatiana Jefferson. So I'll be donating significant amount of the proceeds after cost to to ongoing, you know, justice work. Because it's important that I don't want to be someone that benefits off of black death. And I don't, this is not to further or advance me in any way. I've been doing music for many years, all my life. And I have other work and other projects that are coming forward. But this this is my contribution to creative justice and to be able to support activists and efforts here, specifically in my area. Like my artist profile on Spotify, Apple and Tidal, and I have a Black Requiem BLM playlist that helps the song to kind of build presence. I'm on every streaming, it's on every streaming platform. The song is Black Requiem by KB Uncomplicated, K for Katina, B for Butler, Uncomplicated. Because when you type, like when you search Black Requiem, there's like a metal band that's also like from some years ago. So you might not see it at first at the top of the search, but you can type in Black Requiem, KB Uncomplicated. I'm on all streaming platforms. Like and follow my social media. I have a press release on my website, thefountain.space. I have an organization that serves Black women and other women of color via the intersection of culture faith and creativity. There's information about Black Requiem there. There's links. And so you can go there to look for info. But yeah, we just want to build presence for the song and really get it into the hands of, because I want people to be able to, so many times people have to go somewhere for healing. And a lot of times they don't go, they don't get where they go. Like there's, you know, a woman's conference, but they still come home broken. They go to church and they still come home broken. And so I wanted to give, I want with my music to give people tools and outlets that they can use in the in their closet at the house. I want them to have something that they can listen to. And I know there's, I'm not the only one, there's lots of things out there, but I just want to add to that collection of resources that you can pull out for yourself at your home. So if you know people that are, are, are struggling with injustice, if you have black friends, people of color, and even, you know, because I have many white people that feel uplifted by this song and feel seen and feel heard in the things that they've experienced, you know, share the song, share it, share it on your social media. I'm on Instagram, Katina Stone Butler, TikTok Lord. I just, 
TikTok is just, I got like three followers because I'm so sick of social media. <laughs> <sighs> I am, but I thought I was just going to get on Facebook after a long time after everybody else got on there. And then it's like, here comes Instagram, here comes Twitter. But Katina Stone Butler on all the, you know, social media platforms. And that's it, just... Enjoy like I have the the I have a Spotify artist profile, and the Black Requiem Black Lives Matter um, playlist, and the song is a part of a bunch of songs that are my default for justice music. Mm-hmm. So it's a cool playlist of art, many artists that I mentioned earlier that I love that you can jam to. So and, check it out. And, yeah, check it out. Thank you guys so much for your support, Brad and Garen. Y'all, y'all, y'all are the real deal, and I just really appreciate, you know, just all the love and support that you guys have shown me. It's meant so very much. Y'all are walking the walk. Well, we do love you. I love y'all too. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you're looking for more information on what we discussed, take a look at the show notes or go to blackhistoryforwhitepeople.com. If you'd like to play a supportive role in the podcast and be able to vote for future topics, for $5 a month, you can check us out at patreon.com backslash blackhistoryforwhitepeople. We'll leave you with this quote from Martin Luther King Jr. Anyone who starts out with the conviction that the road to racial justice is only one lane wide will inevitably create a traffic jam and make the journey infinitely longer.